Welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Schwartz. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Yeah, I, I think I can give that a shot. Uh, I've uh, been interested in science since uh, since I was in elementary school and have made a career of trying to interpret it for the public, making sure that they can separate myth from, uh, from fact. I'm uh, also an amateur magician, and I like to spice up my presentations with uh, a little bit of, uh, of stage magic. And um, I'm also a fan of the theater, I'm a fan of sports. And uh, whenever there's a scientific connection between those, I, I make that. And uh, I, I try to give people a picture of their daily life in terms of science, of everything that they use, all the controversies that are out there. And I try to do that in an entertaining and informative fashion. That's really terrific. Thank you. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? Uh, I have a PhD in, in chemistry. And uh, as I like to tell people on, on my own radio show is that I think that chemistry is a central science. It is the one that ties all the other sciences together uh, because um, basically we, we define chemistry as the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes, which includes everything because everything in the world is made of matter. And if you have an understanding of how atoms join together to make molecules and how molecules can interact in chemical reactions, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen uh, in the world. So, uh, you know, I've, I, I fell in love with chemistry very early on in, in life, uh, way back in, in elementary school. Uh, I, I think at, at first stimulated by some of the books that I read, Jules Verne, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and uh, Journey from the Earth to the Moon. Those were, you know, real stimulants. Uh, but uh, it was really one event that I, you know, I've often talked about that, that really catalyzed everything. And that was when I was back in grade six and I was invited to a birthday party. And uh, the, uh, the parents of the birthday boy had hired a magician to entertain us. And... Uh, he wasn't very good. He was a teenager, and, and uh, most of the tricks he did, I've long forgotten. But he did one, which was absolutely captivating. Uh, he took three ropes and uh, showed us six ends, and then all of a sudden, the three ropes became one long rope. Well, what was interesting about that is that as he was performing this, he reached into his pocket for his so-called invisible chemical, which he sprinkled on the rope. And the idea was that it was this invisible chemical that made the magic happen. Well, even back then at that young age, I knew that there was no invisible chemical that would link three ropes into one. But I wondered why he had used that word <clears throat> instead of abracadabra or hocus pocus or alakazam, it's magic chemical. And that interested me. So I went to the school library, I took out a book on magic, I took out a book on chemistry. And I followed both of those ever since. And, uh, you know, it, it might seem that this is kind of a, a bizarre juxtaposition because uh, chemistry is a hard science firmly rooted in the laws of nature. And what do magicians do? I mean, magicians uh, uh, 
pretend that whatever they're doing is against the laws of nature, right? They make people levitate, they, they cut them in half and restore them, you know? Uh, so there were these interesting links. And of course, I, I quickly understood that everything that is done in magic is done by perfectly scientific means. It's just that the audience is never privy to, to what the real magic is. Whereas in science, you have um, visuals that look absolutely magical. You know, you pour two solutions together, change color. It looks absolutely magical until you provide an explanation. So there were there were these sort of, you know, uh, similarities between magic and science that I liked. And so that really uh, what got me uh, going. And uh, uh, I started, you know, to read on my own about about chemistry, uh, took out books and uh, in, in elementary school, really didn't have very much science at that time at all. And I was looking forward to finally getting to learn some real chemistry in high school. And that didn't really happen. I mean, we had chemistry, but it was very poorly taught. Uh, we never really did an experiment. We just drew diagrams of experiments and memorized names, etc. And then I hoped that when I got to university, uh, I would start to hear about some of these amazing things that I had been reading about on my own, you know, about how batteries work and, and you know, uh, uh, how drugs are made and what cosmetics do and what paints are all about. But even in university, although I had excellent courses in chemistry, I never saw any of these practical things. It was all theory, very well taught. And, you know, I mean, I remember in my early physical chemistry courses, I, I could very easily reproduce everything on the exam. I knew how to solve the Nernst equation. I did very well, but I never realized that what we were really doing was talking about a battery because you know that was never made, made clear. So I decided that if I ever had the chance to get into academia, my focus would be on making sure that students understand that the reason that we study science is because it has application to their life. And so um, everything that I have done since then, uh, in all my teaching, whether it's in you know undergraduate or graduate students or medical school, uh, I make sure that I teach the concepts properly, but also show them the light at the end of the tunnel, why it is that they have to learn uh, these things, and that uh, eventually uh, you know became a. a a sideline where I started to get uh, asked to speak outside of the university to various kind of groups. And it just uh, steamrolled from there. And finally, 22 years ago, the university said, well, you know, there's such hunger out there for scientific information and people are standing on soapboxes, screaming nonsense. It's time to do something about this. And uh, so we established what uh, has become the Office for Science and Society. Uh, which is um, dedicated to separating sense from nonsense. And as I'm sure you have experienced, there's a tremendous amount of nonsense out there today. And uh, so uh, filtering out the, the nonsense from the senses is, is very, very challenging, especially in these COVID days. Thank you. That's a, a wonderful answer. And importantly, it helps me to understand what it was that attracted you to science as a career. So building on that answer then, what would you say is the most enjoyable aspect of your work? Uh, I think when, when I see that the message has gotten across, 
you know, where, where you see that you've actually done something and you say, and you, you know, you get um, a message from, from someone that, gee, you know, that was really helpful. And now I'm properly guided and I know how to make this decision. And now, uh, of course, the, the, uh, the biggest challenge is to convert the uh, unconvertible, <laughs> you know, the, uh, because I mean, as you, you well know, we have, uh, the anti-vaccine, anti-mask lobby uh, out there, and but even among them, uh, my experience has been that there there are two kinds of of, of uh, individuals there. There are those who are absolutely convinced that they are right. They're dedicated to their cause. Uh, nothing will uh, get in the way of you know of, of them proselytizing about this. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. We're not going to, to, to change them. But there is another, uh, you know, big part of the population uh, who, who honestly just don't know because there is so much information out there and so much of it seems contradictory. And, uh, you know, even some of the so-called expert advice uh, seems contradictory. So they, they just don't know. And they kind of throw up their arms and say, well, you know, it, it, this is all too confusing for me. And I, I, that's why I, you know, I, I don't want to take the chance until we know more, et cetera. Now, these, that's a different category of people. And they're with, with proper reference to, to, uh, to science and by uh, kind of uh, provoking questions and, and uh, you know, sort of giving them the rope to hang themselves there you you can have an, an effect but but the you know the dedicated uh, philosophical anti-vaxxers and these uh, we're not not going to uh, to convince them and it's uh, uh, it's an argument that that i found isn't even really worth having because it's so unproductive it's it's like uh, it's the evolution creation argument you know, I mean, I used to get involved in that. I don't anymore because the, there is no way that you're going to convince a, a dedicated creationist about, you know, evolution uh, because it's, it, it's not that the playing field is tilted. It's that we're not even on the same playing field, you know? I mean, one, one is faith-based, the other is evidence-based. And once you have, you know, your faith based, then evidence doesn't matter one way or another. And uh, some of the, well, many of, you know, the, the extreme anti-vaxxers and, and, you know, the, the uh, promoters of hydroxychloroquine and all of this is, is faith based. It's not evidence based. And then the, so you're, you're not going to convince them no matter what studies ro you roll out because their views are not based on, on, on that, you know, they're based on, on just uh, belief systems. That, that is certainly consistent with, with my experience. The problem is not just that you are, oh, these people don't understand it, no matter how clearly I explain it. That's not even the issue. The issue is that you have two opposing epistemologies. One interprets the world through a certain set of rules and filters and the other has a completely different process a more rational as you say an evidence-based yeah, process yeah. and if you can't recognize and address that epistemological divide 
then you, you're really wasting your time unless that person is prepared to say, okay, yeah, maybe there is another way of looking at the world that will bring me to better conclusions, more accurate conclusions. I'm prepared to be persuaded of a, a different worldview, there, a different way to interpret knowledge. If there is a, a large, uh, large segment of the population that does fall into that category who you know, legitimately don't know, which is understandable because there is a lot of confusing information. But there are those people who say, okay, well, show me the way, try to convince me. And there you have a chance of, of, of doing something. What advice would you give to anyone who's considering a career in science? Well, uh, I, I think there's just no substitute for formal education. I mean that, you know, <clears throat> in order to be able to, to talk legitimately about science, you have to understand the science yourself. And, uh, you know, while there are many good journalists out there who write very good scientific articles. However, they are prone to making some fundamental mistakes because of a lack of, of knowledge of, of what the science really is. So they're always relying on the word of someone else, you know? And you know that journalists are, are trained to look at both sides of an issue, right? They're gonna write an article about some sort of controversy, whether it's vaccines or climate change, whatever. So they'll interview experts on both sides and then come up with what they think is, is a legitimate article. But very often it comes out uh, as if the, the two sides that they have interviewed have equal weight because they will interview experts and you can find experts to say almost anything that you want, you know, because not all scientists agree. And, and you know, there, there are rotten apples in science as, as well. But the thing is that, that even when you're a trained journalist, unless you have some fundamental knowledge yourself, it's very hard to know exactly where that balance lies. So that's why I, I, I think the, 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 if you're going to, to get into uh, any kind of, of uh, you know, public understanding of science, you're going to promote that. You yourself have to have a pretty strong science background so that you know, you, you know what the issues really are and that you hopefully can be on the right side of the argument. So <clears throat> I would say that, a, you know, a formal education undergrad degree in science is, is, a, uh, is a prime requisite for communicating science uh, in an effective way. I'm glad you raised that issue, uh, the issue of, of balance, or if, if we can put it this way, what tends to end up being false balance when reporters try to write about, you know, a science story in the news. And as you say, they, they look for, you know, another view to, to balance it. Um, when in actual fact, that's not what they should be doing, unless, of course, it is maybe cutting edge research and there is genuinely an honest weighted balance of opinions right. on, on the issue because people are still working it out. But when it comes to things like, you know, vaccines or whether or not gravity exists, this is not the sort of thing that you bring in that whole, you know, well, there's always another side to the story. There, there isn't another side to the story. There's science and then there's nonsense. And right. if, exactly. if you're not on the side of the science, 
You don't have an equivalent argument. There is no balance. Science is not a democracy. It's not about, you know, the most number of voices um, win the day. It's actually about the weight of the evidence. And Well, I and- mean, in one sense, you, you do have to take into account who is saying what they're saying. For example, in, you know, if you look at climate change, right? Uh, I mean, it's, of course, possible to write a, 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 some sort of article which presents equal views, you know, but the fact is that when you look at climate scientists around the world, people who actually do research in this, 97% of them agree that the earth is warming and that there is a human involvement in this. But then you have the other 3% who generally are very vocal, you know, and uh when you interview one from each side, it, it kind of seems like, like you should be listening equally to them. No, because one is backed by 97% of, of the scientists, the other is backed by 3%. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, numbers do matter. You, you have to, to have a look at, at who is saying it and how legitimate are they and how many of them are there, you know, who agree on, on this. But if you just listen to one, you know, I, I give you an example, uh, which this I've actually done. You know, one of the, the chemicals that is so controversial today is bisphenol A, BPA, which is used to make polycarbonate plastics. It's used in many ways. And it's a, a, a known endocrine disruptor. And there are some issues with this. Well, I can put together a talk that will vilify this chemical, make it sound like it's a substance from hell, with references drawn from the scientific literature. And I can also put together a talk equally convincing that it is absolutely no problem at all with references from the literature, you know, uh, because there's so much stuff published these days and it's not of equal weight. Uh, you know, we um, generally, I mean, in legitimate science, we of course worship at the altar of peer review, but not all peer review is equivalent. You know, it depends who the peers are, you know. So, for example, you know, you, you look at the uh, uh, Indian Journal of Homeopathy, all right? Well, they will have articles about the benefits of, of homeopathy, and it's a peer-reviewed journal, you know. But when your peers are homeopaths, it's, it calls things into question. So, you know, you have to look deeper than just, you know, whether it's peer reviewed or not. And this is why I say that, you know, you need a fundamental understanding of just how the world of science works. And it's, it's not so simple. And, you know, even in, in science, there, uh, there are trustworthy sources and less trustworthy sources. And uh, unfortunately, uh, scientists are not beyond reproach. I mean, you know, when, when fraud rears its ugly head, which it does, uh, you can look at a tragedy. I mean, you look at Andrew Wakefield, uh, you know, who is, is really the god of the anti-vaxxer <laughs> movement, who uh, was a legitimate gastroenterologist until he saw, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and uh, basically committed what amounts to fraud, publishing a paper that should never have been published. The Lancet should have never accepted that paper also. That's, that's another conundrum there, how a paper that, you know, relied on, on such few cases w- was published in the Lancet. But anyway, I mean, we've seen what that paper did, right? It, it caused epidemics of, of measles. 
and now i mean he has been anointed as as you know as a prophet uh worshipped and and of course now he's even saying more outrageous things than than he, he ever did and there you have someone with a, a sound science background right who's gone off the track and this is one of the the uh, most problematic and dangerous things for us when you see people who have solid scientific backgrounds and then somehow they just go crazy it's it, it's it's incomprehensible i mean you you know you you see this at the highest levels you know you have luc montagnier nobel prize winner who gives credence to to non-existent molecules having an effect you know in homeopathy yeah you had, you had uh, uh, carrie mollus who, who gave us pcr who thinks that he saw a, a talking raccoon <laughs> you know sometimes just to say well we know it. it's just a crazy world so then let's talk about your new book which i understand is coming out uh later this month can you tell the audience what your book is called and what it is about science goes viral uh, is the is the title and uh, i mean obviously these days uh, if you're going to write a, a book about science you can't ignore covid so i had to you know uh, do that so uh, a good portion of the of the book the beginning deals with the uh, issues that that we deal with uh, you know regularly what are vaccines how do they work uh, what do epidemiologists do what are the parallels between the 1918 uh, pandemic and and today what you know what are some of the quack stories quack remedies that are uh, that are out there so i discuss you know all the issues that that have become you know common fodder these these days but hopefully by by giving the underlying science telling people not what to think but how to think about the uh, about the issues you know uh, how you go about collecting references and you know who's trustworthy etc and i try to do that in a very readable way uh, you know it's not a textbook uh, i think it should be understand it should be understandable by most people you know uh, and uh, uh, i i also try to you know make it entertaining so that that uh, you know you you re you read a chapter and you digest it and you don't necessarily have to read them in sequence uh, each one can stand on its own and uh, you know next time you go to the bathroom you pick up another chapter and and uh, and read that and and uh, then before you know it you become uh, educated <clears throat> so a good part of the book deals with uh, issues about uh, about the SARS-CoV-2 virus about the uh, epidemiology of the disease, about um, you know what mRNA vaccines are, uh, how they work, what are the different kinds of vaccines, what are the risk-benefit ratios. I mean, that's you know one of the the themes I address all the time, not only with the virus but with just about everything else, because that's what life comes down to. We evaluate everything in terms of risk-benefit, not necessarily consciously. I mean, you know, you get into your car and you drive, there's a risk there. <laughs> you know, you fly in an airplane, there's a risk there. But you determine that the benefits outweigh the risks. So I think it's always, a, you know, it's a mistake to suggest with any kind of medical intervention that there's no risk. 
there is a risk with everything. There's a risk with vaccination, but you have to take a look at how it measures up against the the benefits. I mean, I, I think it's you know it's it's uh, uh, ridiculous to start saying that. Well, you know, if if you get vaccinated, you might get Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is true, happens in a fraction of one percent of of the time. You have to weigh that against uh, you know getting COVID nineteen, which can kill you. Uh, so you know, I, I I use that kind of argument, the the risk benefit. Uh, but also, uh, just because we've been dealing now for close to two years with COVID doesn't mean that the rest of life stops and science still goes on in other areas. So I do address you know, uh, many, many other interesting aspects of, uh, of science. And uh, what I always try to do is, is uh, throw in a dash of history because you know, it's, it's my understanding is is that if you don't learn from what has happened before you are likely to make the same kind of mistakes uh, you've got to know where you've been before you go forward and i, I also try to you know link um, events that people may be familiar with uh, you know uh, everyday life historical events uh, etc so uh when I, I, I write something, I always look at it and say, you know, what, what are they going to learn from this? Uh, is it uh, entertaining as well as uh, informative? And uh, I, I try also to uh, make it uh, really as brief as, as possible that the science allows, uh, because I, I'm very aware these days that uh, people don't want long-winded uh, uh, arguments. It, it, this, I, I think it's a consequence of living, you know, in the Wi-Fi era and in the online era is people want uh, information that's encapsulated, but uh, accurate. So I, I do that. I, I, uh, uh, I try to make sure that, you know, every chapter is informative and entertaining and uh, easy to uh, understand and that it somehow relates to uh, everyday life. Thank you. And, and now I'd, I'd like to go through a, a few examples of topics sure. that you covered in, in your book and sort of unpack them a bit for the audience. So, for example, on pages 14 and 15, you explain how soap works to clean our hands and kill microbes. And you, you say that soap does a better job of this than alcohol-based sanitizer. Now, for a lot of us who've been raised to understand that alcohol is a, a natural sanitizer that kills germs. It might sound a bit counterintuitive. So for the benefit of the audience, can you explain why soap does a better job of cleaning dirt and killing germs than alcohol? Well, alcohol actually is a very good germicide. There's no question about that. But in order for the alcohol to uh, destroy a bacterium or a virus, it has to be able to reach it. And uh, if, that, uh, if the bacteria or the virus are embedded in some greasy dirt, the alcohol is not going to get through that. Now, soap, of course, forges a link between water and fatty substances. That's how soap works. Soap is a long molecule, one end of which dissolves in oil, the other end dissolves in, in water. So our, our, our body is, of course, coated in sebum, which is a natural oily material in which the dirt is embedded. And the 
soap will forge a link between the sebum and the water. So when you rinse away, you're rinsing away all of the oily material with the dirt embedded in it. Alcohol doesn't do that. Alcohol does not necessarily remove soil. So it will kill whatever microbe it gets into contact with. But if that is embedded in, in, in some sort of soil, the alcohol doesn't uh, get it at it. So in the case of, uh, of COVID and the, the virus, uh, the, the virus has an outer layer of fatty material in which the soap very easily uh, embeds itself and, and, and therefore removes it. Uh, so the, the soap kills the, the, the virus, plus it removes soil in which the, the virus may be embedded. So both of them are effective germicides as far as the virus goes, but, but uh, soap has the added advantage of removing the soil with the virus in it. Thank you, that's really great. Then on page 58, you discuss the anti antimicrobial properties of copper, and you list some examples of its use in ancient medicine among the Egyptians, Greeks, and Phoenicians. But how can copper help to fight microbes? Well, the use of metals, not only copper, but silver is another example, has interesting history in antiquity. Um, you know, the ancients used to store water in silver vessels because they learned through experience that that water then would not make them as sick. Uh, so that's, you know, eventually, of course, you learn from experience. And uh, metals like silver and, and copper uh, very easily get oxidized. That's the term that we use. It's a very good term in this context because it means reaction with oxygen. And what oxygen does is it strips electrons away from, from the metal, from copper, and converts it into a copper ion. Uh, ions are atoms that have lost or gained electrons. And the positively charged copper ion is a very effective uh, disinfectant. Uh, it can interfere with uh, the DNA of, of microbes. So this is, has long been known, and uh, it has, of course, been capitalized on. There, there are many institutions now, for example, that uh, hospitals uh, that will have doorknobs made of copper, uh, or you know, the, the poles on which the IV infusions are hung are, are made of copper, where you know where there's a lot of handling, because it turns out that the microbes don't survive as well on those uh, metals. The only problem here is that uh, this is not an instantaneous reaction. It takes time for the copper ions to, to disinfect. So when you have um, uh, companies sell uh, pieces of copper that you're supposed to put up your nose and, and mush around to kill the virus in there, uh, see, this, this has the basis of scientific legitimacy, but then it, they extrapolate it to nonsense because unless you're willing to sit there for hours and smoosh around in your nose with this uh, copper utensil, it's not going to do you uh, any good. But of course, when you conveniently leave out the time factor, you can make an argument for buying this instrument that, that will quote, kill viruses. But even, even that being said, uh, by the time that you would get to that virus in your nose with the copper, that virus has infiltrated the, your, your cells already, so, you know, and has 
gone down your throat and you know into your lungs so it would be totally useless but when it comes to inanimate uh, objects you know or or you know serving trays in hospitals which are constantly handled yes there it, it uh, makes some sense the the problem there of course is that copper is expensive thank you that's really fascinating i, I had no idea they were actually using it in in hospital settings but that makes a lot of sense on pages 105 to 107, you discuss natural and synthetic chemicals. Yeah, this is this is the bane of my existence. I, I would say that uh, in uh, in my more than 40 years now of being in this public arena, uh, this is the myth that I have to fight the most. The belief that people have that viruses or any kind of naturally occurring substances is somehow okay, but if it's made in the lab, it's, it's, it's not. This, of course, is total nonsense. I mean, viruses, bacteria, fun, fungi are, are all natural. Uh, we spend our life trying to overcome the ravages of nature. Botulin, which is the most toxic substance known, is, is totally natural. Ricin from castor beans is natural, right? The, the aroma of a skunk is natural. Scorpion and snake venom, they're all natural. Disease is natural. We try to overcome it with very often totally unnatural means. Uh, the, the drugs that we produce, uh, are made in pharmaceutical labs. You know, they, they're not grown on trees. And even when we use a natural substance, very often it is altered in a way to make it uh, more efficient. But the important point to understand is that the, the benefits or detriments of any substance are not determined by its ancestry. It doesn't matter if it was made by mother nature in a bush or by a chemist in a lab. What matters is what it is and how we have studied it and what that information uh, uh, tells us. And, and when, uh, when you're talking about uh, a substance, it's only identifiable character is its chemical composition. So if you mention caffeine, well, to a chemist, what is caffeine? It's a molecule. We see it in our mind's eye as being carbon atoms, hydrogens, and nitrogens bonded together in a certain way. Whether that caffeine molecule was made in the coffee bean that grew on a tree, or if it is made by synthetic reactions in a lab, doesn't matter. That end result is, is caffeine. It has exactly the same chemical composition. The route by which you got there is totally irrelevant. And yet, you know, when you listen to some of these bloggers, they will make that distinction that you don't want synthetic chemicals, only natural ones, even when they are identical, which of course is, is total nonsense. That caffeine made in the lab is identical in every way to the one that comes from uh, from the tree. Yeah, it's um, it's a very sneaky trick of advertising that's managed to convince everyone that the word natural is you know safer, and and the word synthetic is is more worrying because of of the connotations. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, it, as you point out, it's, it's a false dichotomy that's that's simply been leveraged to to make profits. Oh, the word natural sells. There's no question about that. You know, you put it on a label and uh, whatever it is, whether it's a shampoo, whether it's a food, uh, it will enhance the sales. 
So on pages 134 to 137, you discuss the potential hazards of blue light. What is blue light and why should we be careful about our exposure to it? Well, light, visible light as we know it, is actually made of a number of, of uh, different wavelengths, different colors. I mean, if we go back to Isaac Newton's classic experiment, right, passing light through a prism, it separates into the colors of the, of the rainbow. Well, each of those colors is actually characterized by having a different wavelength. And uh, uh, blue light uh, has somewhat of different uh, effect on our physiology. Uh, I mean, certainly light has an effect on our body functions. Obviously it gets dark, we get sleepy, it gets light, you know, and we wake up. We have a certain, what we call circadian rhythm governed by the outside world. Well, it turns out that uh, uh, light has an effect on the production of melatonin, which is a hormone produced by the pineal gland in, in the brain. And uh, it is not all kinds of light that equally stimulate the production. It depends on the wavelength of, of, of the light. And it turns out that blue light is somewhat more disturbing to the, the sleep-wake cycle than, uh, than the other uh, wavelengths. And uh, uh, this is of, of some concern because, you know, our, our uh, TV screens, our computer screens, our telephone screens actually emit uh, a good dose of blue light. And uh, this is why, you know, the advice these days is that, that you shouldn't have too much of this kind of light in your bedroom because it's going to interfere with sleep. And uh, interference with sleep uh, has all kinds of health uh, connotations. So, you know, there's sort of scientific consensus, which is a bit difficult to follow. Don't watch TV in bed, you know, before you go to sleep. Don't use your computer. Don't have your cell phone. Uh, but I think these are things that, that most of us can't abide by because of the kind of lifestyle that we have these days. But there is uh, uh, this evidence and, you know, studies show that, that um, blue light uh, has a tendency to keep you awake uh, more than other types of light. And that's not a good thing. On pages 195 to 196, you discuss antioxidants and free radicals. What are they and why are they mentioned so often in the context of dieting? Well, of course, we, we, we give courses on antioxidants and free radicals, so it's uh, difficult to encapsulate. Uh, as, uh, as you know, uh, our life depends on breathing oxygen. Every single cell in our body requires oxygen. But um, oxygen is a double-edged sword. We can't live without it, but we can't really live with it either because when cells use oxygen, there is sort of uh, some friendly fire that is, is also uh, uh, synthesized. And uh, those are the so-called free radicals uh, because in, in this very complex biochemistry that goes in our cells, when proteins, fats, and carbohydrates react with oxygen to generate ATP, which is the currency of energy, uh, there are also these side products, these free radicals. Now, free radicals are, are described as uh, molecular species uh, that are missing an electron. Now, electrons are the glue that hold atoms together in molecules. And uh, if, uh, if a species has one fewer electron than 
what it would like to have, it will try to steal that electron from some other molecule. And since electrons are the glue that hold molecules together, the molecule that has been the target of the free radical then will be destroyed. So they, in the basic problem here is we breathe oxygen, we need oxygen, but oxygen also promotes the, the production of these uh, free radicals, which then can attack other species like proteins, nucleic acids, uh, etc. Now, antioxidants are substances that can satisfy the electron hunger of free radicals in such a way that tissues are not damaged. So these are the, the substances that we find in foods, the so-called you know, antioxidants, uh, which are many different categories. We have the anthocyanins, the flavonoids, the flavanols. These are all complex molecules that derive from the diet uh, that have the ability to donate an electron, but they themselves will not do any damage. Whereas, you know, if a, if a free radical steals an electron from a protein that's important in the body, then that's an issue. But if it steals an electron from a compound that we got from blueberries, there's not going to be no consequence to, to the body. So this is why, you know, the current opinion is that we should be eating foods that contain a lot of these uh, antioxidants. But again, this, the science is not as settled as, you know, often people believe. What we do know is that populations that have a diet that is more plant-based tend to be healthier. Uh, of course, you have to be careful with these epidemiological studies because those may also be populations that are more physically active, you know? So uh, there may be other, other reasons. But in general, we know that plant-based foods uh, guide us towards a healthier diet. Plant-based foods also contain lots of these antioxidants. Uh, in the laboratory, you can show that free radicals are neutralized by antioxidants. So it's, it's a scientifically sound argument. But uh, nobody really has shown that if you take these antioxidants out of the plant and put them into a pill as a supplement, that they do the same thing. We don't have any evidence that people who take dietary supplements are any healthier than, than people who, who don't. We do have evidence that people who eat plant-based diets now, whether or not that's due to the antioxidants or whatever other feature there may be in the plant-based diet, because plants are complex chemical factories producing hundreds and hundreds of different compounds. We don't know exactly which ones are, are, are active, but we know that, that it is better for us to eat uh, plant-based foods. I, thought, I don't think exclusively, and I don't think that you know, one should get into the habit of evaluating every drop of liquid that goes into our body and every morsel of food as whether is this good for us or not, because there's more to life than such an evaluation. You know, Beverages and foods also are a great source of pleasure. Uh, so you don't want to go you know, overboard, but we do have enough, I would say circumstantial evidence that the antioxidants in food are beneficial for us. Thank you. Now, the last example I want to look at, it has become politically relevant in the last few years. And that's on pages 216 to 219, where you discuss the use of chlorine in the poultry industry. The European Union prohibits the sale of American chicken meat because it is treated with chlorine. At least that is the argument the, the EU presents. And now that the UK has left the EU, 
British lobby groups are raising concerns that chlorinated chicken will be sold in post-Brexit Britain. So this leads me to three basic questions. Firstly, why is American chicken treated with chlorine in the first place? Secondly, if the Europeans don't use chlorine, what do they use instead, if, if, if anything? And thirdly, should we be worried about chlorine levels in commercial chicken? Okay, uh, uh, let me answer the last one first, because I think that's a resounding no. I don't think we have to worry about that because there's really no residue. All right, now to the other, other questions. I don't know of any farmer in, uh, or in fact, any kind of industry that says, you know, uh, I don't think we're spending enough money on our product. Let, let's find some chemical that we can put in there with an added expense in order to scare our customers or make our customers sick. <laughs> All right. So when the, the poultry industry in the US uses <clears throat> uh, chlorine washes, <clears throat> it is not without reason. They don't do things like that for, for no reason. And the reason of course, is that chlorine is a very effective antimicrobial agent. And uh, chickens, like other living species, are, are loaded with bacteria. I mean, you know, we, we live in a world that's full of bacteria. Most of them are, are harmless, but not all. Some, of course, are pathogenic or, or disease causing. And you don't want those to multiply. You don't want the population to be exposed uh, to that. Now, the, the, the issue here is in that in the U.S., chickens are raised on massive, what has been called chicken factories, you know, where, where they are... Uh, together hundreds if not thousands of chickens in, in barns. And that is just con conducive to the spread of bacteria. And uh, so one way to, to fight that is by, uh, after the slaughter, the chickens are passed through a chlorine wash to, to get rid of the, the bacteria. Uh, in, uh, in Europe, basically the, the production methods are different. Chickens are not raised in such close confinement uh, it, it has been just a different chicken culture, as, as it were, not, not as focused on the bottom line, on squeezing the most profits uh, available. Uh, there is more attention being paid to animal welfare, you know, and uh, so it's, it's, it's somewhat of a cultural uh, difference, but also prompted by the fact that when you are raising chickens in such close confinement, you are more likely to, to have uh, bacterial contamination. And this is why the chickens are washed in, in, in a chlorine solution. Now, there's essentially no chlorine that is left behind. I mean, we use chlorine to disinfect water all the time. You know, I mean, if, if someone is going to be uh, offended by chlorinated chickens, they should also be offended by, by drinking water that has been disinfected with chlorine, which, you know, 98% of the population drinks uh, such such water. Uh, but uh, I mean, obviously the arguments that are being raised in Europe now have not only scientific undertones, but economic, uh, political uh, undertones as, as, as well. I mean, obviously the, the poultry industry in Europe does not want American chickens, uh, you know, to be imported uh, because the American chickens essentially can be raised more cheaply, right? Uh, so, you know, there are those uh, arguments that you know underline and uh, and they're kind of using the chlorine argument to to you know buttress the that view uh, 
On the other hand, I think it's also fair to say that it would be better to raise animals in a more humane way, uh, you know, rather than than try to to squeeze them together and then uh, undermine some of the problems that might ensue with uh, a chlorine wash. Uh, but when it comes to the final product, uh, I don't think there's any worry about residue because the residue is just uh, non-existent. Thank you. That's very reassuring. So can you tell me the three most important things that you hope readers will learn from your book? Uh, the importance of uh, measuring risk versus benefit in whatever uh, confrontation you, you, know, uh, you come across. Um, knowing whom to trust. Uh, you have to look at their background. You have to see where the information comes from. And uh, uh, yes, uh, peer review is important, but, but it doesn't mean that whatever you get is set in stone. Uh, you always have to have a certain degree of skepticism. And uh, you have to learn to exercise critical thinking. Uh, whatever you read, look at it, uh, see what is there that can be criticized and see whether or not the criticism stands up. Uh, so always look for the information and, and especially see who is giving that information and whether or not there's any reason for them to say what they're saying based on potential financial gain. I think that's a very important feature. Uh, and you know something that I like to point out all the time uh, that we have no vested interest in my office. We don't accept any money from any vested source. Our only allegiance is to the scientific method. And uh, I think that's the way it should be. Uh, I, I really don't care whether hydroxychloroquine can uh, be effective or not. Uh, what I care is that whatever information we base our judgment on is legitimate scientific information. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online or well, elsewhere? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to our website, which is www.mcgill.ca. You can sign up for our weekly free newsletter uh, when you go there and you get all our videos, my radio programs and everything uh, on, on the website. And uh, I'm always available by, by email. That's joe.schwarc said at mcgill.ca happy to answer any questions that's absolutely brilliant thank you so much dr schwartz it's been a real pleasure talking with you today thank you very much